last August, I was mowing the lawn on a Friday afternoon and I was listening to a podcast. I don't remember the conversation. I don't remember what podcast it was. But as I was mowing, I thought, you know what? I would enjoy making a podcast. And so I just jumped into it. I started emailing people who I wanted to sit down with and talk to. And I had no idea what I was doing. I was way in over my head. I spent a ton of time on the front end and Jordan helped me with the music and I had to buy things that I was not anticipating. It it was a huge learning curve, but it has been so fun to do, to produce, to put out every week for you all. Thank you to all of you who have been regularly and faithfully tuning in. I have enjoyed these conversations and I hope you have as well. This last one for a little while, I'm going to take a break over the summer and then maybe come back in August or September, still trying to figure out what that will look like. I'm in a little bit of a job transition and so trying to get my feet under me in the job that actually pays me before I uh, figure out what's going to be happening here with uh, this little side project hobby that I don't get paid for. So until then, though, this last episode is really at the heart of what I wanted this podcast to be. And I am so looking forward to having you hear this great conversation with a guy named Will Hutcherson. Well, welcome back to Raising Up the Next Generation. I'm your host, Dan McPherson, and my guest on the show today is Will Hutcherson. Will has a passion for students, a passion for parents. He has been in youth ministry and in ministry to parents for many years, and specifically around mental health, having a heart for that, a heart for students and depression suicide prevention, mental health awareness. He started an organization called Curate Hope, and that's been where he spent the bulk of his time as he's traveled around and talked with people, which is really why I have him on the show today. He lives in Florida with his wife and their three kids and has good friends up in Kentucky. We were talking about him traveling up here. He loves traveling and talking with people and parents and excited to have him on the show today. Will, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm, I'm uh, honored and privileged to be here. So mental health is a big deal. I think people probably knew that pre-COVID and then post-COVID, it's now on the forefront of everyone's minds, especially those who care about teenagers, who have teenagers in their life. It's It's something that is so prevalent and and for especially parents and youth pastors, it comes up in in numerous conversations. I have a conversation weekly with with a parent or with a student regarding these issues. So how have you seen anxiety, depression? You talk about the word despair, which I want to kind of break that down a little bit in a minute. But how have you seen that change over the past couple of years? Does it show itself in different ways? Is it is it more prevalent? Kind of talk about that a little bit. Yeah, that's that's a great question. And because that is a pain point that oftentimes parents feel. And I know as a 
a youth worker, somebody who's worked with teenagers now for 15 years, you can definitely see that there's a change. Mm -hmm. Like I often joke, uh, and Dan, you could probably relate with this. And in the early 2000s, you know, youth pastors preached about sex, drugs, and rock and roll. You know, it was like just reduce behavior and be safe. Yeah. And something shifted. I would say for me, I started to notice it a little bit in 2013, 2014, but I really started to notice it in 2016. Mm -hmm. And more and more parents were coming into my office and they're saying, hey, I think my kid's depressed. How do I help them? Or my kid's dealing with some some self-harm. What do I do about this? And and honestly, I, I remember as a pastor feeling like, okay, I know, I know my spiritual tools. You know, we can pray, we can read the word, you know, small groups and community, all of that is really important. Um, but I didn't know, I didn't know what were the practical things, you know, what were the practical things that we could do to influence the brain towards healing? And so I started talking to my mental health counselor friends, started looking into the research and really found that, you know, hey, God's wired our brains to respond in predictable ways. And we've learned a lot. We have a lot of research in how our brain functions. And there are things that we can do to help influence the brain towards healing. But uh, it really, all of that came out of seeing this dramatic shift in our culture. Um, the the statistics show it we see uh, over the last 12 years um high increases in suicide rates among teenagers specifically the highest rate of in increase in suicide is for ages 10 to 14 years old hmm. the highest rate of increase and that's 2019 stats by the way that I'm I'm giving to you from from the CDC so that's pre-COVID stats. Hmm. Post-COVID, the stats aren't any better. Like they're they're actually showing um, a little bit worse holistically when you look at every demographic. One of the things that um, has been a big shift post-COVID, we're seeing a lot more anxiety than than before. Now, anxiety was already on the rise, but now anxiety is really on the rise. And I think sometimes as adults and those of us a part of older generations, when we hear anxiety, we think, what is anxiety? I mean, we didn't have anxiety when I was growing up. We just sucked it up, you know? Right. And and the reality is, is that our culture's changed a lot from the time that if you're over the age of, let's say, 35, even the way that you grew up and the way that kids grow up nowadays has changed quite a bit. And so there are some variables and some factors that we had within our culture and within our growing up that um, were supportive systems that helped maintain our mental health. Some of those have eroded quite a bit. And so that's why we're seeing uh, the next generation, kids, teenagers, and even young adults, actually young adults have the worst of it when it comes to anxiety. And there is just this, this reduced amount of ability, say resilience, to cope with negative events in life mm. and fear, loss. There's a lot of trauma and there's a lot of negative information that's hitting them. And that is kind of creating an overload on the brain. And especially for a developing mind, that's a lot to accomplish, a lot to, to deal with. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, so all that to say, what have I seen? I've seen a big increase in, in all of these uh, mental health challenges, um, specifically among teenagers and young adults. Yeah, yeah. I I can't remember what book it might be uh get your life back John Eldridge right has this line 
our souls were not meant to carry everything that we have at our fingertips now that yeah. we weren't we're not we're not supposed to um have access to all of this information and be able and and we don't have the ability to process all of that well and so yeah. um, I, I thought that was such so insightful because i see that in my own life and and students mm-hmm. as well think about young adults in my own personal story i had um, kind of a mental breakdown and it happened when I was in college and kind of just all these factors coming together in the perfect storm really, really kind of set it off. Mm-hmm. But you, in your, in your book, so you wrote a book called scene and you, you use the word despair. And I think, you know, for, for you talked about the word anxiety for older generations, but the word despair is pretty that that's a pretty intense word. You know, we think the sky is falling, the sky is falling, woe is me, you know? And so surely depression, sure. Anxiety, sure. But despair, I, you know, so why do you use that word and kind of unpack, what do you mean by despair? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. I think the reason why we chose the word despair and we, we talk about how despair works in the brain, because like I said, when you look at the neuroscience, there's a lot that we can learn. Okay, God made our brain in in, in a specific way, and we can learn and discover um, how it functions and what happens um, when we experience certain things. Well, when it comes to despair, despair is this place of hopelessness, right? It's a place of, of deep hurt and pain and where you've come to the end of yourself. Mm-hmm. The reality is, is every single one of us have felt despair to some degree or another. It might've been momentary despair. It might've been despair that has lingered with us. Maybe we've experienced grief and loss. So we know what despair feels like. And the hope is we don't stay in a state of despair, right? But but we've all experienced despair to a degree. And it may be a, a small thing in life, or it may have been a big thing in life, but we felt that emotion of despair. The reason why we use that word is because when we're talking about helping kids and teenagers, sometimes as parents and caring adults, we feel this pressure to diagnose our kids. Well, like, do they have depression? Do they have anxiety? And um, or even even parents that will come to me and they'll say, you know, my kid has depression. And I'm like, now, is that your assessment or is that like a a true like clinical, you know, expression? Because um, oftentimes we have it wrong. That's actually one of my favorite questions to ask mental health therapists is of the people who come in and they self-diagnose themselves with depression, how many of them are correct? Most of the time they've said maybe 30% are correct. Mm, Wow. And so... So a lot of times our, 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 you know, it's, it's similar to when we Google things, right. That's wrong with our body. Well, we will always be wrong, you know, and we'll be convinced that we're dying immediately. Um, so we're not, we're not always the best at assessing the condition or the diagnosis. And we should leave that to professionals. Like when my kid has an earache, um, I, you know, they have an earache. I don't know what's causing the earache. I don't know which virus it is. I don't know how it got there. I take, I take my kid to the doctor. The doctor says, oh yeah, he has an earache and here's how we should handle that. Um, it's a virus or it's this, you know, but I, I can assume some things, but I really don't know I need a professional. So what I really encourage parents to do and for caring adults as well, leave the diagnosis to 
the professionals. Mm-hmm. You don't have to figure out if your kid has depression. Although if you have a hunch, take some steps. You don't have to figure out if they have social anxiety disorder or a deeper anxiety than just your normal anxiety in life. Like take them to a professional, let the professionals help you in that. Mm-hmm. But what we can do is we can all recognize despair. We can all recognize when somebody's hurting. And when we can see that, when we can see somebody who's hurting or in that place where they are um, emotionally detached or they're feeling numb or they're just kind of um, just really down and blue, there's things that we can do, ways that we can respond that can help influence their brain towards healing. So to simplify this, um, as you're listening right now, imagine that your brain is made up of two parts. So it might be helpful to like hold up your fist if you can, if you're driving, don't do this, but um, you know, hold up your fist and like, imagine that you have a right side of your brain and the left side of your brain. And the right side of your brain is where your emotional processing takes place. This is where your amygdala, if you remember that from school, that's predominantly where your amygdala fight, flight, or freeze. All of that exists on the right side of the brain. Your left side of your brain is where your logical processing exists. So this is higher thinking, function, decision-making, et cetera. When we have healthy functioning, the processing goes back and forth. We have emotions that we feel, we logically process them, and everything's smooth and groovy. The problem is, is that when we experience stress over stress over stress over stress, cortisol, stress hormone, floods our brain, and it can it, it triggers the brain to even change the blood flow. So biologically, something shifts, blood flows prioritized on the right side of the brain, and it increases the processing on the right side of the brain. It's almost like the amygdala, and this is especially true for teenagers and young adults with their developing brains the amygdala starts sounding off like a massive alarm and the right side of the brain gets really elevated and the left side of the brain decreases in function. So think of it. So you still have your fists kind of held up. Think of despair as a dispairing between the right side and the left side of the brain. Mm. So, so this is a big deal Mm -hmm. when we can imagine this and we see this in our kids and our, in our teenagers and we see that, okay, when they're experiencing despair, they have a dispaired brain where the logical processing isn't highly functioning right now. And emotional processing is really, really high. And this is really difficult. And when you ask them how they feel, they might say, I don't know. I feel numb. Um, they might shrug their shoulders. They might not want to talk. And, and that is that is another indicator that they, they may be experiencing despair. When somebody's in this state, um, it can be really difficult for them. You know, they, it, it's, it's not an easy place to be. Um, and, uh, um, you know, psychologists, another way of putting this is an emotional detachment. It's a defense mechanism really to deal with the co- the stressors and cope with the stressors in life. But here's the cool thing. So our brain responds predictably to high stress and stress over stress over stress specifically, but the brain also responds predictably to connection. And this is where the book scene was written out of this hope is that um, we don't have to diagnose our kids, but we can know that our love, our empathy can actually influence their brain towards healing. So when someone feels seen, when someone feels listened to and they feel connection and they feel safe from another individual, the brain goes to work. Oxytocin, another hormone that's, that's known for emotional bonding also is released in the brain. And it can actually bring the two sides of the brain back together and increase the logical processing once again. So think of despair as a despairing between the right side and the left side of the brain. 
but connection is a repairing of the right side and the left side of the brain. So love and empathy actually matter. And this is a huge, huge part and, and a big part of our hope here is that oftentimes as parents and caring adults, we feel powerless when our kids are going through something. And it's not that we don't need counselors because we do, but we just don't have enough of them. It's not that we don't need small group leaders and youth pastors, and we need all of that. It's a wraparound approach. But the good news is, is now knowing how our brains are wired, that we as parents can actually influence the brain towards healing. And our love and empathy isn't just a, a throwaway wash. It matters and it can influence the brain towards healing. And that's really good for mental health. So hopefully if you're listening to this, you're a parent, hopefully that gives you hope and knowing that there's something that you can do and it, and it matters. Your connection does matter when your kids are experiencing anxiety, despair, or even if they do have depression symptoms, um, connection can help influence. It's not the only thing that they need, but it's a big part that can influence the brain towards healing. Yeah. I want to, I want to kind of get into some, some different demographics of people and have you speak to speak to different different groups here in, in a minute, but when I think there are some, some stereotypes or things that are blamed for mental health issues or anxiety or, you know, that, that kind of sometimes in broad strokes are, are blamed that maybe are either outright wrong or a little bit misguided or taken out of context what are some stereotypes or things that you that you think are maybe blown out of context a little bit or blown out of proportion? And then maybe some things specifically that kind of really speak into our mental health. So meaning like what are some stereotypes of how we got here or how somebody experiences it? Sure. Or may, maybe an example that I think of is, um, you know, someone says, well, it's it's just our devices or it's just social media that's that's all of our that that's our issue and if we got rid of that then then we wouldn't have these you know that kind of thing yeah yeah okay yeah i totally get what you're asking and i love this question by the way because when we talk about how we got here um i think this is important because for parents and caring adults again if we're over the age of 35 sometimes we look at all this and we're like what is wrong with this next generation? They just need to suck it up. Yeah. You know what? You just need to rub some dirt on it. You know, the, the yeah, it's, it's an emotional world, but the world isn't cupcakes and rainbows. Just get over it, right? That's what we want to say. The problem is, is everything I just said there is logical processing, right? And <laughs> based off of what we just talked about, it doesn't work. Right. But why, why is it different? And I've asked this question. So let's go back even centuries, okay? You look at, you look at the Bible in the New Testament, you look at Paul's life, Paul experienced a tremendous amount of trauma, right? You look at, he was shipwrecked, he was beaten, he was rejected, he was prisoned, like, it was bad. Like, I put myself in Paul's shoes and I'm like, would I be in therapy? Like, would, <laughs> like, yeah, like, really ask yourself, would you be in therapy, you know? <laughs> and, and why didn't Paul need a therapist? Was he just that much of a better Christian than me? Like, did, was he that close to Jesus? Now, I do think he was very close to Jesus. Like, I do think he had a great relationship with the Lord. And I think he had supernatural strength because he walked in the spirit, right? Yes. 
But here's what we often miss. We miss the context of Paul's culture. Paul walked in a slow communal culture. Mm. In other words, every time he was imprisoned, he was with people. He was with someone. Or even when he was, people would visit him. Um, when he was beaten or maybe he was going to a city from city to city, he would have to walk there. Like, so if you had to go from Lexington to Louisville, you would have to walk there. Paul would have had to walk there. There's no iPads. There's no devices. So to that point, um, there's no podcasts. Like you're just, you're walking with your thoughts and it's taking days to get to your next thing. And even if he had a donkey, donkeys don't go slow or don't go fast. They're pretty slow. Right. right? And he's probably with somebody. Mm. So he was, you know, and, and, and in that culture, there was more, even I think more honesty about how they were feeling, you know, um, we, we see that in the Psalms. There's a lot of emoting. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of mm-hmm. honesty yeah. with how we're feeling. And so for Paul, there was likely a lot of reflection. There was a lot of stillness in, in time with the Lord. There was a lot of connection with others, feeling empathy and love from others. All of all of that that I just mentioned is powerful, brain-boosting, mental health-resilient mm. things that help our brain to cope and help us to overcome, especially when we, we've experienced traumatic events. Yeah. So I think that's a big portion. Now let's fast forward, okay, to the 19th century. Um, our world starts to change. We start to get faster industrial revolution. Fast forward to the 1950s. We go from having front porches to now we have garages, we have back porches. We become more and more disconnected as a culture. The breakdown of family starts to spiral in the 60s and 70s. Now we have even more lack of connection. Um, Both parents are now working. um, And so there's more and more lack of connection. Fast forward, now we have devices. And we're spending more time on devices than we are in face-to-face conversation. Mm. My grandparents used to like just go and knock on somebody's door randomly because they were in the neighborhood and sit down with people and talk with them. Like they wouldn't call them beforehand. They would just show (laughs) up, you know? Right. And you're like, What? And what they didn't realize, and like, so even grandparents that might be listening to this, what you don't realize is you grew up in a culture where you felt micro little moments of love and empathy, Mm. because the way that our brain interprets face-to-face connection and empathy specifically is different than uh, digital devices. Mm -hmm. So have digital devices perpetuated the mental health crisis? Yes, it hasn't been helpful, but it's not the core result of We've been moving towards a lack of connection for a long time. I'll give you one more example of this. Um, Dan, let's say that in ninth grade, you experience a disappointing event. You know, some girl broke your heart. You were dating her and, you know, she broke up with you. You would likely would have been spending time face to face with your friends every day. Mm -hmm. And you go over to, let's say you go over to my house, you know, and you're like, bro, you won't believe this. Like Jill broke up with me. And, you know, she didn't even tell me why. And then I saw her, you know, flirting with Brian and just, uh, and I would say, no, bro, Dan, I'm so sorry. You'd see my face wins. You'd see me 
get mad on your behalf and heartbroken on your behalf. I'd give you a bro hug, you know, and I'd be like, bro, don't worry about Jill. Like, have you seen Megan? Like Megan likes you. Like, you know, I'd, I'd try to make you feel better. And then I'd probably say, you want to go play basketball? And you say, yeah. And we go out and we play basketball, right? And, and all of that face-to-face cued the brain through mirror neurons, cued the brain to feel like my friend cares about me and I feel seen right now. I feel empathy and love. Oxytocin is released in that exchange to help decrease the feelings of disappointment and despair. Now, fast forward, it's, it's, it's now, it's 2023. Instead of hanging out every day, we likely talk over text. And you probably text me, bro, you won't believe it, Jill broke up with me. I'd send you back an emoji, maybe a GIF, and be like, sorry about that. And then I'd send you a picture of Megan and say, check out Megan, I think she likes you, right? And, and do I still care? Am I, as a friend, empathizing with you? Yes. Does your brain interpret the information the same way? No, yeah, it doesn't. Right, and so you, it, this is why a teenager and a young adult, and even adults, can feel so connected, but yet still feel alone, mm. because the brain chemistry and the way that we receive empathy and we receive connection doesn't happen the same way. Now, uh, digitally over Zoom, there's it's a little bit better because at least you can see facial expressions, you can hear tone of voice. Um, the only thing we're really missing is that appropriate physical touch, mm-hmm. you know, which, and, and, and to be honest, sometimes you just straight up need a hug. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you just need the presence of someone there, mm-hmm. especially when you're going through a difficult time. So that's the last thing I'll say about how we got here. And it's also another indication and example of why connection matters so much when we're talking about mental health. Yeah. Yeah. Well, even I think about Zoom or FaceTime, I was <laughs> listening to someone, I can't remember who it was, but a little while back, and they were they were talking about how that not even that is um is the same because you always have your picture on the screen as well. And so half the time you're looking at yourself wondering how you look. I this whole time have just been staring at your hair. So I haven't even seen any facial expressions <laughs> at all. So it's just, you know, it's it's just different um, even then, which I thought was so funny. I mean, you're right. And and when it comes to the digital connection side of it, I think this is the best of it. Yeah. But, but you're right. Nothing beats face to face connection. Yeah. Um, nothing does. Yeah. Yeah. So you talk about you talk about connection. A lot of our listeners are parents of teenagers, but we also have people who listen, who are mentors, who are leaders. Uh, and and also parents who want caring adults in their students' lives. So talk about the importance of put bringing other adults around teenagers who are not their parents. Why is that so important, and how can that be done well? And maybe even you encourage parents of ways that maybe they can find other adults for their for their teenagers. Yeah, well, I'm going to be a little biased here. And to answer the question of ways to find other adults, I think the church is the best place to find caring adults, especially a church that has a small group strategy Mm. um, that prioritizes small groups within their ministry. Um, Because every parent knows this. As soon as your kid turns 12, 13 years old, you're no longer the coolest person in their world. Part of the adolescent development is this identity versus identity crisis, right? So they're 
in this development of identity, part of that is pushing back against their parents and really trying to figure out who am I outside of my parents. And so at times that feels like they're distancing themselves from their parents' influence, turning that voice down and leaning into other voices. And that is true. Other voices are starting to increase. Relational influence will be higher than positional influence in the high school you know, phase. So having additional voices that are, yes, positional in the sense that they're adults with wisdom, but also relational in terms of their influence is vital because then you have someone who is coming alongside of you, reinforcing the same values that you have as a parent and helping to encourage your kid in a positive direction. Um, for me as a parent, my goal is I would love to have, you know, three to five extra voices in my kid's life. So whether that is a mentor at, at church, um, a coach at school, um, a friend, you know, I have some, some really good close friends that I really trust their voices, um, a youth pastor, you know, some other voice that you can trust uh, that is connected with your kid, I think is a really good, good and necessary thing. And so uh, again, my bias is I don't think there's a better place than the local church. Um, I think that the local church is uniquely designed for for connection, honestly. And not every church does it great. Uh, I think it's something that we are working through and we need to be challenged to continue to increase and get better at. Um, but I do think we're uniquely designed for it. Mm -hmm. I am biased as well. I love the local church. I think we are uniquely put in a place where we can speak into people's lives. And I wanted to ask the question, and so I'll, I'll, this is a great on-ramp to do that. As you've thought through mental health, as you've watched, been been in teenagers' worlds for years, how are you, what encouragement are you seeing with churches who are stepping into this well? And then how where do you see some some ways that maybe the church still needs to still needs to work in this area and and speak out in in better ways? Well, I'm I'm really glad you asked this question because I think, like I said, the local church is uniquely designed for such a purpose. And um, I'll I'll first I'll answer it a little bit in reverse, and then I'll give you the examples. Sure. But one of the things that we see right now is we have a mental health crisis. But what the mental health community is starting to recognize as well is that we have a crisis of care. In other words. In the last 40 years, we've spent a tremendous amount of research on the brain, and we know a lot more about the brain than we ever have, um, but we have diminishing results. When you contrast that with the amount of money that we've spent, let's say, in cardiatric research, um, well, in the last 40 years, we've spent about the same amount of money, honestly, in heart health research and mental health research, neuroscience and cardiac, same amount of research money. The difference is 40 years later, we have great results when it comes to taking care of the physical beating heart. You know, we have procedures that are life-saving procedures. We've seen a decline in cardiac deaths because of now understanding how our heart functions and things that we can do. The opposite is true when it comes to the brain. 
even though we have the same amount of research, same amount of money, we've increased our knowledge quite a bit. We actually have had diminishing results. Mm. Um, so what mental health professionals are starting to recognize now is that we don't just have a crisis, a mental health crisis per se, we have a crisis of care. Um, and this was a really big eye opener for me because coming from a ministry background of, you know, being a youth pastor and um, I'm, I'm not a doctor, you know, but to hear the doctor say, hey, we actually we're missing something here. And what uh, Thomas Insel, so he was the um, the director of the National Mental Health Institute for for many years, uh, over a decade. Um, he kind of presented this idea in his book that uh, what we're missing is that we're really good as a society. We're really good at crisis care. In other words, we have medicines and when people are in psychosis or they're in like a severe mental health crisis, we're really good at kind of dealing with that. Um, and we've gotten better at some of the medical pieces, you know, understanding how the body and mind are connected. The problem is, is that we're really not good at long-term recovery when it comes to mental health. Mm. We will medicate and then we forget about it. But we know from research that that can't be the only thing. Mm -hmm. It has to be, yes, medicine can be helpful, but it can't be the only thing that we need a wraparound approach. And one of the things that he said that I thought was brilliant is he said, people need, in order for them to have long-term recovery, we know this from research, they need people, place, and purpose. Mm. People, place, and purpose. Now think about that. What institution in our society exists but give people people a place a safe place and purpose yeah. yep the church it was uniquely designed for yeah. this right and you go back 100 years the church played that role it was the third space in the community you had home you had work you had the church the right. church was the center of the community and that's where you found people it's where you found a place it was your gathering spot and it was where you found a sense of purpose a greater purpose so Think about that. If you're a leader listening to this, we are uniquely designed for such a time as this. Mm -hmm. We are the missing piece. Mm -hmm. And if we can understand that and start to think in terms of how do we best approach the mental health crisis? How do we how do we service and, and reach people who are experiencing mental health challenges? First, I think we have to have a community approach. In other words, we can't think that we are the end all answer. Yes, there is power in Jesus' name. There's power in scripture. There's power in worship. There's power in biblical community. But we have to remember that the brain is also an organ. In other words, if I was having a heart attack, I hope you wouldn't say, we better get you to church so that we can pray for you. Right. I hope you would say, we better get you to the hospital and we're going to pray for you. Right. <laughs> you know, right. like it's the practical. And that yeah. doesn't mean we have less faith, by the way. It's faith and action together. Mm -hmm. Right. And we mm -hmm. get that. Paul, Paul gave Timothy some pretty practical advice when it came to his stomach pains, right? It wasn't just, well, Timothy, I'm going to pray more for your stomach pains to be released. Did Paul see miracles and healing? Absolutely. Yes, God can heal us in an instant. But there was also some practical faith in action together things as well. <laughs> and so when it comes to mental health, we have to remember that, that yes, we are a part of the solution, the people, place, and purpose. But there's also some practical things. So we have to team up with the mental health community. We have to team up with uh, school counselors and we have to team up with mental uh, doctors as well and understand the nutritional side. There, there's so much that we can do 
to, to help build bridges between faith and, and the mental health community. And I think it's needed and we need to champion it. Um, the other thing we can do though, is we can really dive more into connection. One of the things I've been pretty disheartened in specifically about youth ministry is coming out of COVID, how we've almost regressed a little bit where I've seen a lot of youth ministries shifting more towards just programmatic, big stage productions and just experiences, alter experiences or just worship experiences. And although those are helpful and good, um, we, we're missing the connection side of it. And I, you know, I wouldn't have guessed that coming out of COVID, I would have thought that we would have naturally realized the need for connection and that we would have doubled down on small groups. Um, I don't know if it was like a lack of volunteers that some churches were like, well, we just need to not do small groups as much as we did in the past. But let me be really clear. If you're a youth worker listening to this or a youth pastor that's listening to this, I'm going to say something lovingly, very difficult, but lovingly. You can't be serious about mental health if you're not serious about small groups. Hmm. Because... And it's similar to discipleship. Discipleship does not happen without the personal connection. Mm -hmm. Mental health connection and helping people to recover and have resilience built up in their mental health does not happen without the context of small group and people, mm -hmm. people, place, and purpose. So the best thing that we can do, the best thing we can do is to give kids Jesus 100%. But the second best thing we can do is to give them some people that they could do life with. And specifically a small group leader who they know is for them, that sees them, is with them, that is showing up consistently for them. That is a huge resilience builder. Research has shown this over and over and over and over and over again, that the number one factor in building resilience in the next generation is one caring adult. It doesn't take a lot. Just simply one caring adult mm -hmm. makes a difference. Mm -hmm. So that's my appeal to you, to church leaders, that we have to be serious about small groups and, and to parents. Maybe you're a parent listening to this and maybe you need to get involved in your church. Go lead a small group and know that you're not just wasting time when you show up. It may seem like they're not listening to you. It may be frustrating. It may be frustrating hearing their stories of what they're going through, but your presence matters. It matters a whole lot. Mm -hmm. Man. So good. Such a good word. I completely, completely agree. Amen with all of that. So that's the that's the church side. You spend a lot of time as well in schools talking about this issue. Uh, so share some of your share some of your experience there. What, how have you seen the school systems kind of rallying around this and um and speaking into it in in unique ways. Yeah, the school systems, um, it's tough. One of the issues right now, if teachers are overloaded, mm -hmm. uh, they are dealing with a lot of the mental health challenges. They're seeing it firsthand in the classroom um, and feeling like there's a lack of resources and ultimately because there is a lack of resources. Mm -hmm. Even a school that has a mental health counselor, usually those mental health counselors are experiencing high burnout or they're just overloaded and it's hard for them to track with every kid. Mm -hmm. So um, 
you know, those who are working in the school system, I empathize with them a lot. Part of what we do with Curate Hope is we try to come alongside them, um, help to kind of boost school culture. Uh, we do assemblies and presentations that are suicide prevention or um, just overall mental health awareness uh, to create conversations. Specifically, our number one goal is to spark a conversation between a kid who's hurting and a caring adult. And so um, we, we've seen a lot of success with that. We've seen a lot of um, positive results from, from that. Uh, it's difficult right now. Uh, one of the things that we're still investigating trying to figure out what are ways that we can resource school counselors with better efficient, uh, efficiencies and tools to be able to track with, with kids and their stories. Um, and that might be something that we, we develop to just resource, you know, schools with, but, um, it's, it's a challenging place right now because like I said, the need is so high post COVID it, it made it a lot worse. I was just talking to, um, uh, a school administrator recently about that. And just, uh, that the, the post COVID world has created a lot of challenges for the educational system, mm -hmm. um, so it's not for a lack of, again, it's not for a lack of knowledge. We have the research. We now know and understand a lot when it comes to the neuroscience. It's really, uh, we just have a, a crisis of care and how do we apply this to our current systems? And um, it's taken us a little bit to figure out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I'm grateful for your, your organization who's doing that. And really that also speaks to the church as well to really be the ones who are stepping up and and filling filling that space and also maybe an encouragement to churches like hey just reach out to your schools and be a partner mm -hmm. be a partner with them and encourage them and come alongside teachers who are who are struggling and and provide resources and encouragement in that way as well yeah um, super important so i want to i want to finish with kind of having you speak to a couple different groups of people. And the the first are, so for me, my kids are young, twins who are four, I have a two-year-old. But how can we, me and my wife, and then people who are um, kind of in, in my similar age stage of parenting, begin talking about mental health issues with our kids and kind of make, not... Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, maybe like normalizing it and giving language for that. Um, how have you seen that maybe in your own parenting, the things that you have mm -hmm. learned and studied um, kind of speak to me personally? Yeah, well, in that phase under five, um, there's a lot of emotional new things that they're experiencing. Mm -hmm. The brain is rapidly growing um, in that phase. Uh, and it's filled with a lot of temper tantrums and emotional outbursts because they're trying to learn how to emotionally regulate. Most kids by the age of five, they can be, you know, they, they start to emotionally regulate. Um, I would say a good tool, maybe not for younger preschool, but older preschool, a good tool may, might be to use a mood chart where you can start to identify some emotions. The, the more we can at a young age, start to increase the emotional vocabulary that is going to be a big help for them in the long term and that's true for elementary school as well um, because as a society we don't have a huge emotional vocabulary so when we experience despair or disappointing events going back to that brain illustration i was talking about 
sometimes we just live in this. How do you feel? And we have three emotions. We either feel happy, sad, or angry, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) And the reality is there's so much more than that. And if we can teach our kids to have a greater emotional literacy, then that'd be helpful. I would say also in the phase of five and under, the number one most important thing is developing secure attachment. So just to save time on the podcast, I would Google uh, secure attachment, anything from Dan Siegel, um, when he talks about secure attachment and how to build secure attach- secure attachment, um, apply that to your parenting would be very helpful. The book Scene talks about a lot of these secure attachment pieces that work in every single phase. So um, it works in preschool, it works in elementary, middle school, high school. These, um, these connection tools help develop secure attachment and when you apply them, it it will just be investing in that. Yeah, love that. And that was the reason I had you on is to promote your book. So um, feel free to <laughs> feel free to plug it as much as possible. Um, well, I, not not to promote it. Honestly, it's just it's a tool. No, I love it. <laughs> you know, I love just, it. Just it's. Uh, I, I wish I could talk about everything we talked about and seen in a podcast like this, um, but there's just so much to cover. And so the easiest way to say it is. Pick it up. But I will say this too. We do have a free resource on the scenebook.com. There's a feelings wheel there. So this would be a good tool for Mm -hmm. elementary, preteen, and teenagers where you can download a free feelings wheel. And that could be another good emotional literacy tool to to help your kids. Good, good. Love that. The second group I want you to speak to is the parent of a teenager who is struggling right now with something in their life and they're feeling they're feeling despair they're feeling hopeless yeah give give some encouragement speak speak into them a little bit well first off you know i want to say i i empathize and i feel for those parents because i know how difficult it is when you're a parent you see your kid hurting um i i know from experience and i know from my my years of um of seeing that pain you know, firsthand. But um, I want you to know there's always hope. And just because your kid is struggling today doesn't mean they always will. Um, Sometimes as parents, we see a problem and we immediately project that problem into the future. And we think, oh no, if we don't fix this today, then they're going to be blah, 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 blah when they're 23. And it's like, whoa, 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 whoa. (laughs) Today is today. You know, remember that the brain is rapidly changing in the teenage years. And um, one year it's this, the next year it's something different and they could have, you know, new brain processes that allow them to cope with these stressors in a different way. So, um, the brain will continue to grow until about the age of 25. So, you know, there, there's going to be some, some navigation over the teenage adolescent years, but there is always hope. First thing I would say, if you feel Uh, just overwhelmed and in a a state of despair yourself or just discouragement, um, have a conversation with someone that you can trust. Maybe it's going to counseling yourself. Well, I don't need counseling. My kid needs counseling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that might be good for you to have a support system. And counseling, by the way, you say this, sometimes we think counseling, you only go to counseling when you have a problem or you only go to counseling, you know, if you're crazy, that's for crazy people. (laughs) That's not true. When there's no, no such thing. It's, it's when you want to grow. Counseling is growth. Mm. And sometimes there are seasons in life where you just need a little bit more support. 
And so uh, I would encourage counseling. I would encourage talking to a trusted friend on a consistent basis, but have a standing meeting or a standing opportunity to just feel seen. Um, because if we are not emotionally regulated as parents, it's going to be hard for us to help our kids to be emotionally regulated. So taking care of you is really, really important. Um, it's kind of like when you're on an airplane, you know, they tell you put your oxygen mask on first yeah. before you help someone else. Yeah. Um, we have to do that. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're sitting there breathing heavy and struggling to get oxygen, but you're trying to help your kid, you gotta, you gotta put on your oxygen mask first. So find support systems, take a break when you need to figure out ways to, uh, to regulate. Um, and then the second thing I would say is when it comes to approaching your kid and helping them to heal, um, connection matters. Uh, the tools that we talk about in seeing are to show up, like, you know, we can't create conversations, but we can increase the opportunity for conversations to see them. Um, so going back to the brain illustration, uh, when we see a right brain activated kid meet right brain with right brain, um, oftentimes as parents, you know, we want to just go right into the logical processing. You know, they come home, they're like, I failed my test. And you're like, you failed your test. I can't believe you failed your test, you know? And then, you know, I'm not surprised you were on the TikTok till 11 o'clock last night. And I told you to go to sleep and study. Right. And when we do that, when we have a right brain activated kid who's disappointed because they failed their test, but we respond with logical processing of why they could have done it better. What happens is they roll their eyes and they say, you just don't understand. Mm. What they're really saying is you don't see me. So we have to pause and see the emotion first, help them to emotionally exhale. Then we'll be able to engage the logical processing. But when we have a, a right brain activated, high emotional kid, and we meet them with left brain logic, it, they can't receive it. So we first have to empathize with them and just say, hey, I can see that you're really disappointed. I'm so sorry. Think all the same thoughts that you were having before, all the logical things that are still true. Just don't say them right then. Help them to emotionally exhale, give them some space to get down to a neutral place, then say, hey, what do you think we could do differently? Mm-hmm. And hey, maybe we could talk to your teacher. What do you think about that? Now, as a parent, you're going to stumble through this. You might get it right two out of five times. That's okay. Two out of five times. Actually, there's actual research that says this. Two out of five times of emotionally responding correctly to your kids is enough to build emotional resilience. Mm, wow. <laughs> so that's encouraging for a parent. You don't have to be perfect. <laughs> you don't even have to be 50%, right, you know? Right, right. Uh, not even majority. You just have to keep swinging the bat and keep trying. You'll eventually hit one, you know? So, um, so just to see them. Uh, and then the last three I'll say real quick is, you know, just listen. So when you want to start telling your stories, listen some more, resist that urge, um, speak life and firm your kids. Like if you think you encourage your kids now, encourage them even more, speak life, speak to who they are and what you see in them, their potential, that's huge for attachment development, letting them know that you love them unconditionally. Uh, again, they might roll their eyes. They might be like, I can't believe it, whatever, I don't know, you know, but just do it every single day. Do it at least five times where you're speaking life over them. That might feel a little funny, um, but I promise you it's going to it's going to have a big impact on their mental health uh, and then help them to develop grit. You know, it's Yes, we have to meet them emotionally, let them emotional exhale, but then we also have to help them to deal with, you know, negative thoughts mm-hmm. and help them to reframe negative thoughts, um, help them to learn how to overcome negative circumstances. So that's a lot of uh, what we unpack in in the book scene. Yeah. 
Yeah, I love it. So I want them to go get the book. So you mentioned thescene.com, but where else can they go to find you, find your work? Yeah, so uh, you can search it for on Amazon as well. Uh, we have a brand new book coming out in May, May 8th, uh, called Beyond the Spiral, Why You Shouldn't Believe Everything the Anxiety Tells You. Uh, that's written specifically for teenagers and young adults. Mm. Um, and it's a great tool for any kid or young adult that's dealing with anxiety. Um, and so those both those books are available on Amazon. Uh, you could also go to willhutch.com and uh, find links. But thescenebook.com is probably the best place to to find all three of those. Yeah, great. Love it. Well, this has been a great conversation. Thank you for joining me. I end every conversation by asking my guests two questions. And the first is what is something that you are reading or listening to right now that is encouraging you, that's challenging you, something that is really giving you life? Well, I am reading a lot right now because I'm in a master's program at uh, Southeastern University. <laughs> but um you know, I uh, just looking right real quick at my desk, which is very messy. I, I just picked up this book because I was at the Billy Graham uh, library recently, and it's the reason for my hope. And, um, you know, it's just it's just solid. It's mm. Billy Graham. And um, it just, you know, it's just wholesome and good. And uh, I'm, I'm enjoying that. Um, and so and then there's a 500 other books of that, but they're kind of nerdy. So I'm not going to tell you. Right. <laughs> right. I really love reading. I really did not like reading for school. It was, there was something about the, you have to read this book. Now I, yeah. now I go back and read those books. I'm like, man, this is really good stuff. But, uh, yeah, but yeah. in the moment I was so like, I do not want to do this. <laughs> yeah. I agreed. I understand that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I feel for you. The, uh, the second question title of my podcast is raising up the next generation. So who was someone that saw you as the next generation spoken to your life and raised you up? Oh, that's great. Well, there's so many people, um, and including, uh, my parents and just the, the support I had for my family. But, um, you know, someone that really sticks out of my mind is Kevin Norwood, who was, uh, my youth pastor when I was kind of a, a college student, honestly. Um, so I guess my young adult pastor, uh, but he really uh, saw me, you know, he slowed down and uh, helped me to learn and discover even God-given giftings within me, gave me opportunity to try out some of these gifts that I had that I didn't know I had and um, and empowered me with, with uh, to run on some of these dreams. You know, I had I remember in college, I had this crazy idea to do a spring break outreach uh, to reach lost teenagers and young adults who were there, you know, just to party and do a bunch of bad things on the beach. And uh, when I told it to other people, they're like, that's crazy. That's a terrible idea. Uh, but I remember Kevin was like, that's a great idea. Let's try it. <laughs> and and we did it, you know, and it was it was fine. Yeah. Um, but uh, but he was just one of those guys that saw potential in people mm -hmm. and in Still does, still does it. Even to this day, is a huge influence and a, a mentor in my life. Yeah, so love that, love that. Well, thank you for sharing your time. And not to be cheesy, but I know there have been some parents who have been seen 
by you today, just kind of as you've spoken in and, and really, um, you are meeting a need that is so important and, and so needed right now. And I'm, I'm thankful for you. Blessings on you as you continue to speak to parents and to churches and go into schools and try to be an encouragement there. And as you're, as you're a dad and a husband, praying for you and all that as well. Thanks for joining me today, Will. I appreciate you. Thank you, Dan. I appreciate you. What a fantastic conversation to finish this season of the podcast, to finish our time together as I take a break for a little while. This really gets back to the heart of what I wanted this podcast to be, speaking specifically to people, to parents, to mentors of people who are speaking into the lives of teenagers. And I think Will is doing that in such a beautiful way, in such a needed way. I hope you got something out of the conversation. I know I did. Check out the links in the show notes. Everything that we talked about is there for you, and you can find all those resources. And pass this on to someone who may need to be seen. I know this will be a blessing for many, so I would encourage you to share it. Looking forward to the future and what that will look like. I have no idea what what that will look like, but until then, blessings on you as you are raising up the next generation where you're at. We'll see you sometime in the future.